Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. There's still a few more weeks of summer to enjoy. And if you're heading off for vacation, you might want something new to drink. Ahead this hour, we're re-airing our scoop on summer sips. If you're feeling adventurous, there's Mezcal. New York Times drinks writer Robert Simonson offers an excellent introduction to the spirit if you're new to it. We talk with Robert about his new book, Mezcal and Tequila Cocktails. And Bridget and Robert Schulten of Fifth State Distillery share their award-winning craft gin. Tastings are tough, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make for you. But first, the rosés of summer 2021. Our guest Erin Swain is a sommelier in New York. At the moment, you'll find her at La Fin Kitchen and Lounge, a brand new restaurant in Montauk, where I happen to have a family connection. My sister-in-law is an owner. I haven't been there yet, but if Erin's curating the wine list, I'm counting the minutes till I can get down there for a reunion. Erin, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you, Chef Plum. Happy to be here. Your name popped in my head immediately to talk about rosés because you're kind of a rosé fanatic, aren't you? Yes, I am a big fanatic of rosé, and I think it's the drink of the summer. Let's just define what rosé is for us really quick so people understand the difference. Because I think people see, you know, they see white Zinfandel or they'll see light Pinots or they might confuse that. But rosé is not any of that. Rosé wines are beautiful, typically dry wines, and you can make rosé out of any red skin grape. It's the skin contact that makes the color of the juice pink. You can make rosé out of Grenache, you can make it out of Merlot, you can make it out of Cabernet, and you can make it out of, uh, fun fact, Pinot Grigio is a very well-known white wine. However, it's a gray skin grape, so you can actually make our peat wine out of Pinot Grigio. Yeah, I remember being in culinary school and like a switch being clicked in my brain when we had our wine class when I realized that Grenache and Merlot and Cabernet and Pinot and like, oh, those are grapes. That's not a wine type. Once you figure that out, it kind of makes life a little bit easier, I think, to understand it. Yes. And Chef Plum, when I was becoming a sommelier in 2007, we always said the word varietal. And now it's changed since 2013 in an article to variety. So I'm really trying to use the proper nomenclature of varieties. So today we're going to be tasting a few different varieties that make up our rosé wines. Well, what are some characteristics of a rosé that we should look for that may even define it? I mean, it's hard to say that's a great wine. There isn't one thing that distinguishes it as great. But for you, what makes a great rosé? Minerality, acidity, and florality, I think, for a rosé, for me particularly. But it's very subjective, so you got to find what you love and then stick to that. I always tell people to try New World and Old World expressions. The first one that I actually just poured is a New World expression. New World means North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa. Old World is anything from France, Germany, and um, Spain, and anywhere in that sort of like where they used to make wine. So even Israel and um, Austria, those are old world districts. So stylistically, we'd say that old world wines are a little more earth driven and new world wines are a little more fruit driven, but you want to try everything yourself and then see what you like. What's exciting this summer out in the wine world? Um, So I think rosé is always exciting because it appeals to a mass crowd. So these are crowd pleasing wines. And it's something where like if you were picking a white wine and you had either Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc, you're going to have a very um, strong opinion of people that either hate Chardonnay or love Chardonnay. But with rosé, 
and when people are eating um, all different foods on a menu, rosé is kind of one of those classic, oh, let's just get rosé. Yeah. It spreads like wildfire. It catches in the Hamptons. So as soon as someone's drinking a bottle of rosé, then everyone starts drinking rosé. And it's also one of those things that like, it's a very great lunch or brunch drink and kind of acceptable to drink in the afternoon. So, um, <laughs> acceptable to drink in the afternoon. I love that. So I think of wines as if I picture a, a line, a vertical line in my head with a hardcore, like Barolo red at the top and like a really light Sauvignon Blanc at the bottom. Rosés kind of hit that middle. They're great when it comes to food. They're great with fish. They're great with chicken. They're great with steak. You kind of can't go wrong when pairing food with a rosé. I agree. And a lot of that has to do with, in the wine world, there's fruit, alcohol, tannin, and acid. When they are interacting harmoniously, that is what makes a well-balanced wine. And it is the goal of every winemaker. So it's a nice compliment if you're ever looking for something to say about a wine. Oh, it's really well-balanced. And rosés really have that, especially with the minerality, and they're very mineral-driven. Well, I try to have well-balanced in my life, too. It doesn't always work out that well with three kids. <laughs> You've got uh, three fantastic wines to talk to us about today that you're recommending for the summer. And just for those of you who don't know, Aaron actually is sitting in front of us on the Zoom having wine, and I'm not. So I'm very, very jealous right now. I'm going to send a message to our producer, Rob, and let her know that that's not okay. <laughs> yes, we should have got you the wines. Um, so right now I'm starting to have three wines. I have two New World and one Old World wine. The first one I want to talk about is the Dow Rosé. Daniel Dow is, uh, it's coming out of Paso Robles. So it's in California. Daniel and his brother are from Lebanon. They started this vineyard. They're just very, very passionate. They make amazing Bordeaux varieties. So they make um, a lot of really great Cabernets, but their rosé, they're actually using Grenache, 95% Grenache, 5% Sauvignon Blanc. So Sauvignon Blanc, generally a a white grape and Grenache, a red grape. Correct. And so Grenache hails from the Rhone Valley. So the Rhone varieties, I think, do a really, really great job in rosés. And I think that's why some of the most well-received rosés are made from Grenache. So he chooses to do a Grenache base. This is a New World wine. So this vineyard gets a lot of sunshine, so we get a lot of ripe fruit. So immediately on the nose, I'm getting some sweet cherry and some mango. Definitely some brighter fruits because it's coming from a high sunshine area in California. So New World, ripe fruit. And then um, I'm definitely getting a little bit of vanilla and a little bit of orange zest. Interesting. And I want to quickly note when I get some florality, when we get flowers in a wine, it's kind of cool because you're like, wait, why, why would we have flower petals in a wine? That, where does that come from? That actually comes from the bees. And when bees are pollinating in the area and they are by like a lavender plant or eucalyptus plant and they get that pollen on their legs and then they brush by a thin skinned grape like Grenache. That is what imparts the floral element in a wine. That's crazy. So it's coming from the environment, and terroir is very important. Yeah, I didn't know that. And terroir, just another wine word, means basically the land surrounding where the grapes grow, whether it's rocky hills or lots of sunshine or lots of green plants. And one of the things I love about rosés too, Aaron, watch, I could talk rosés all day long. You and I actually have done this before. Rosés, they're not expensive. They don't have to be expensive. They do not have to be expensive. And all the examples today that we're talking about are under $30. They're very approachable. They're also a really fantastic present to bring. If you don't know what to bring to a party and you bring a bottle of rosé, you look like a hero. That's a really great point. Rosés are always a winner. And that Dow she's talking about actually retails in Connecticut for about $15.99. And that's a steal for that bottle right there. I'm going to pick some of that up for this weekend for sure. What else you got there, Aaron? Okay, then we're going to move on to another New World expression. This one that I selected is from Macari. So this is local out here. It's on the North Fork of Long Island. So the North Fork is a great district for growing grapes. And the Macari family makes um, a ton of wines. And this is their 2019 rosé. They are making this one out of Merlot and Malbec. 
So um, the Macari family is very cool. They have, um, I think, four kids. So Ella Macari is the winemaker, and she's studying for this crazy heart exam in Paris, which I think got pushed back because of COVID, but she's making really cool rosé sparklings. Um, this rosé is amazing. Like I said, it's Merlot and Malbec. Now, the color of that rosé is a little bit darker than the Dow. I can see it here on your camera. Uh, just, a, just a hair darker. Is that because of the two grape vari varieties? Excuse me, I almost said varietals. The two grape varieties? I know, it's hard. It's hard to retrain yourself. <laughs> I know, I've been saying varietals my whole life. Chef Plum, you are 100% correct. And I'm glad that you saw the difference in the color. Um, that's why I have my rosé barometer, because I like to look at the different colors. And that is coming from, depending on the grape variety and how long the skin contact is. Yeah. So um, this one, they're darker skin grapes. So they're going to be more extracted. We use the word extraction in wine. So this is a little bit more of an extracted wine. And it does impart more of a color and then sometimes a little bit more robust flavors. On the Macari, on the nose, immediately I'm getting a lot of citrus and I'm getting a lot of red fruits. When I say red fruits, I'm going to say pomegranate, a little bit of raspberry, lot a lot of um again orange peel and lemon zest in this one you'll hear wine drinkers talk a lot about when they smell wine at first before they drink it and the reason why you do that is to kind of set your palate for the flavors but just because you're smelling pomegranate and cherries doesn't necessarily mean you're going to taste that on your palate so when you hear someone like aaron who is an expert at this drink the wine talk about these fruits she's not tasting that it's more on the nose so i don't want people to be like oh that wine tastes like cherries not exactly no no that's true and um and also, just a quick note on the nose. The nose is um, a really beautiful part of the experience of enjoying wine. And the nose is comprised of aromas and bouquets. So typically, aromas come from the grape variety itself. And the bouquets come from uh, something that happens after vinification that the winemaker is doing. So whether they're aging in oak, like we're about to see with the wine number three, or they're barreling in stainless, or they're inoculating different yeasts to introduce malolactic, there's certain things and that will add to the bouquet of the nose. Both comprise the nose, which is probably my favorite thing about wine. It's just smelling wine. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to drink it. You just want to smell it. That's all you want to do. I want to just touch on the North Fork really quick because it's kind of a great winemaking area very close to us here. What makes that area so great is that salty air that's, that's all around it and the wind blowing by it. That's what I think. And the minerality in the, the soil because it's so close to the ocean. Is that a pretty good description of it? That is a great description. And um, a little different than food, but we don't usually talk about salt in a, in a wine because it's not really a thing. However, there is a briny element that can happen. And it's exactly what Chef Plum just said. Why? Just the same as the bees would impart a floral element in the terroir. What would impart um, a, a brininess or salinity? It's the salt water in the air. It's the way the wind is blowing, but it can also come from the subsoil. So there's a subsoil called Kimurigian clay that's in Sancerre and Chablis. And it's actually ancient fossilized oyster shells. And so if you get a brininess and you wonder why Chablis and oysters is a classic pairing, that's where you're getting those characteristics from, the subsoil. Okay, time out. I have to know what that what that <laughs> final word of the spelling bee was in eighth grade that you just said that I've never heard before. What was that word? <laughs> was it Kimmeridgean clay? Yes. What is that? Yes. <laughs> that's so, the, so that's if the you, shells. If, yeah, if you, if you geek out on wine, you start learning all about the subsoils. There's not just clay and um, granite, but there's, you know, different types of, of soil that, that are found all over the world. And Kimmeridgean clay is very, very specialized. And that's uh, known for in one of the sub subsoil layers in Sancerre and in, Ch in Chablis, in Burgundy. Wow. How about that? And it's cool when it imparts that brininess. You're like, wow, I get like a little bit of the sea salt or like it would taste an albarino. And you're like, oh, I kind of want like oysters or shellfish right now. Yeah.
That's fantastic. Uh, that Macari Rosé from Macari Vineyard on the North Fork of Long Island retails for about $30. And you can buy that in some stores in Connecticut as well. It's kind of all over the place if you look good enough for it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great wine. I like that one a lot. It's probably the, mo it's the most expensive one we have, but it's also a, a, it's well worth it. It's really great. And it's really great to try different wines if you're used to drinking all Provence all the time. And then you branch out and you try a new world with a different variety. But they're also available in large formats, oh, which is always fun. Large formats are great, great fun to bring to a party because they serve more people. That's right. Or you have big people like me. You got one more <laughs> for us. And I know this is one of your favorites. Oh, yes. Okay. So this is the Rock Angel and this is by Chateau de Clans. They're probably most known for Whispering Angel. I think everyone knows Whispering Angel. This is kind of like the big sister of Whispering Angel. So the Rock Angel is, again, Grenache, just like the Dow was. They're not putting any Sauvignon Blanc in it, but they are putting on a little bit of roll, which is also known as Vermentino. This one lays down on oak. It is the only producer that is actually aging their rosés on oak. It costs more money. They leave them on oak barrels for a whole year. But what happens is, is that a little bit of malolactic fermentation. I'm going to get geeky for a second. But when we talk about malolactic, we're just converting malic acid, like in green apples, into lactic acid, like in milk. So if you picture biting into a green apple, or if you have a green apple, go ahead and bite into one. You're going to get them on the sides of your mouth. That's where it's going to water. Yeah. And that's where the acid's coming from. Now picture drinking a glass of milk. Do you get that? No, not on the sides of your mouth. You get it on the weight of your front of your palate. And that's where lactic acid hits. So when a that. winemaker uses malolactic, they convert the malic into lactic acid. And the chemical byproduct is called diacetyl, which is the chemical compound in butter. So if you smell butter and you get that diacetyl in a wine, sense. typically it's in Chardonnays, that's where we're getting that from. So everything either has coming from the environment or from chemistry or from an intention that the winemaker had. Science! Science! <laughs> this, this wine has undergone malolactic. Well, I think one of the things I want to point out, too, when it comes to drinking wines that have been on oak, which I think is really interesting for people, when you drink something, it has, uh, and it probably comes from, like you said, that malolactic acid, it has that fuller feeling kind of in your mouth. It kind of coats your tongue nicely, like you said, hits you in the back. But it also that oak tends to lend a little bit of vanilla-ness almost to it. That is exactly it, Chef Plum. Um, the vanilla comes exa exactly from there, that oak aging. It also happens with tequila. I know tequila is a very popular drink of um, the summer as well. And a lot of reposados are very popular. The reposados are coming, they're aging in oak, imparting that vanilla, caramel, butterscotch characteristic. Yeah. So this rock angel is kind of a more serious rosé. Think about it as a food wine. Think about what you want to pair with it. If you blind tasted this wine, you would probably confuse this with a Poulini Montrachet or something coming out of Burgundy, even though it's from Provence because of that oak aging, which really makes it next level rosé. It's really cool. I'm so jealous of you right now sitting there drinking those. These are all great recommendations. And that Rock Angel, you can get, yeah, retails roughly around here for about $28, $29. Yes. These are wines that I can confidently recommend to a, a table of 12 and everyone's going to like it. Aaron, I can't wait to see you this summer. Thank you for joining us here. Those are some great recommendations. Thanks so much for joining us on Season. We appreciate you. Thank you. Cheers. That was Erin Swain. She's a sommelier in New York. Find her at Surfing Psalm on Instagram, and Psalm is S-O-M-M. -M. We'll list Erin's recommendations on our site, ctpublic.org seasoned. Later in the hour, Chef Plum will actually get to taste something. So if gin's your thing, stay with us. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum, coming up after the break, an introduction to Mezcal. One of the most popular drinks in the United States right now is the Mezcal Margarita. It's Mezcal instead of tequila, and it adds that extra punch, that extra spiciness and smokiness. This is Season. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Mezcal has been an emerging spirit in the cocktail world for years, but home bartenders tend to stick with what they know. So our next guest is here to introduce you to Mezcal. Robert Simonson has been writing about cocktails for the New York Times, as well as other publications, for 20 years. He's the author of five books about cocktails, The Old Fashioned, A Proper Drink, Three Ingredient Cocktails, and The Martini Cocktail. His latest book is Mezcal and Tequila Cocktails, Mixed Drinks for the Golden Age of Agave. Robert, welcome to Seasoned. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Mezcal, can you explain what Mezcal is? Sure. Both mezcal and tequila are made from the agave plant, which uh, is a succulent. It looks like a cactus, but it's more related to asparagus. It grows in Mexico and Latin America and parts of America and South America. And uh, people have been making liquor from these plants for centuries. Uh, Mezcal is the older beverage. It's the all-encompassing term for these agave products. Tequila is just one kind of mezcal, albeit the most famous kind, obviously. And there are differences in the way they're made. Tequila is made within a traditional sort of distilling method, whereas with mezcal, you take the plants or the hearts of the plants, which are called piñas, and you roast them underground in an earthen pit for a day or two or three. This is what gives a lot of mezcal the smoky flavor that people associate with the spirit. And then it goes on to fermentation and distillation. Yeah, that, that smokiness is kind of what, it, for me, is what sets it off, what makes it, in, in my mind, mezcal. But clearly there's much more to it than just that. Yes. In the book, uh, talking about the emergence of agave spirits, I think one of the lines we liked a lot was uh, you said, for much of the 20th century, tequila was known for more for shots than for mixing. You didn't really savor it. You threw it back. And that's honestly, right. I mean, that's 100% right. Like people weren't really savoring tequila. That's definitely a newer thing we're doing now. Yes. I mean, if you, if you like tequila, if you drank tequila in much of the 20th century, it was two ways. One was uh, shots, uh, often with the lime and the salt, that ritual, which became popular. And the other way was, of course, the margarita, one of the most famous cocktails in the world and the most popular cocktail in the United States year after year after year. I mean, maybe you drunk a tequila sunrise in the 70s. Maybe if you had been to Mexico, you were you like Palomas, which has a grapefruit soda, very simple highball drink. But that was about it. Um, it wasn't really understood or fully appreciated for the artisanal heritage spirit that it was. And that's the revolution that we've had over this past 15 years. It's becoming a thing. You go to these, you know, fancy hoity-toity bars and we're drinking beautiful bottles of tequila that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but they're just delicious and you can savor them. And that is the big change that has happened with agave spirits. And it's been great for the makers of tequila and mezcal. Suddenly it's uh, been approached as a mixing spirit, the same way that vodka and gin and bourbon and rye are. We went from just a few tequila cocktails and no mezcal cocktails to hundreds and hundreds of tequila and mezcal cocktails in the last 10 years. Absolutely. What do you attribute that evolution of being the dare to take a tequila shot to now? I've seen entire bar menus designed specifically around tequila and mezcal. In other words, what made it sexy? Yeah, I would credit uh, bartenders completely, cocktail bartenders, who are very curious and uh, have helped to resurrect the uh, reputations of many spirits and many liqueurs that were neglected. And somewhere around 2007 to 2009, they started thinking about um, 
tequila. And that led them to other agave spirits like mezcal. And they thought, maybe we haven't been giving these spirits their due. Maybe there's more there. And they started experimenting, not just in putting it in cocktails and creating new cocktails, because I mean, that quite frankly, is the way that a lot of people are introduced to certain spirits through a cocktail, you know, and then they suddenly say, oh, I like bourbon. Oh, I like Aquavita or whatever. But also they started putting better bottles behind the bar. You know, we all know the common tequila brands. Everyone knows uh, Cuervo and a few others, but there are many more out there and you could order them and taste them. Some of these bars had tasting menus where you could like order like three different mezcals in a row, you know, just little tiny servings. And, and in that way, the bartenders were educating their customers. Or what do you think has made this agave plant become such a kind of a go-to for so many different things now? Well, I mean, it's been around a long time. I think there is a certain customer out there, quite a few of them, and bartenders as well, that are attracted to this vague idea of authenticity. They want what they're drinking to tell a story. They want to know that the people who are making it are making it with care, that it's handcrafted, whatever that means. And we all know that a lot of the liquor that we drink is made in an industrial way. And so it's been separated from that craft. But the people that uh, make tequila and especially mezcal, these are, these are small operations and they're made by families, usually generation after generation. And I think that appealed to a lot of people. Uh, it's sort of similar into the way that, you know, the single malt scotches were so popular in the 90s because we thought, well, these are actually in smaller batches, you know, a little more care is taken. There's a little more history here than, say, a blended scotch, you know, like Doers or Johnny Walker or something like that. People have become much, much more interested in where their food and drink is coming from over the last 20 years. And with Mezcal, you can trace it back. You can find out what town it's made and the name of the family that makes it and the kind of agaves they use. You can find out everything. Mezcal is the uh, Kobe beef of tequila. There you go. <laughs> I will say the last time I had Mezcal was during the pandemic. Mm. And I blacked out. Oh, Thank geez. God I was in my house and I was with my family, so it didn't matter. <laughs> but what is the proper way to drink mezcal? Is there a proper way? I just put a little, I just remember I put mezcal, I kind of made it like a paloma. I put a little bit of grapefruit soda in it and some thyme. Oh. And just sipped it. You know, and I'm 110 pounds soaking wet, so one went down real fast. And it was the beginning of the pandemic, so uh. we were all pretty miserable. There is no best way. It has to do with how you like to consume things. Um, there are people out there who are listening to us now who are spirits people, and they are purists, and they want to drink it by itself. And quite frankly, most people in Mexico, they drink mezcal by itself. And they don't put it on ice. They just drink it room temperature, and they just sip it, you know, like you would sip cognac. Then there are people like me who are uh, resolutely cocktail people, and I love to get my spirits through a cocktail. And if you want to mix with these spirits, I think that's okay now. I think uh, bartenders have made that okay. And it's the reason I wrote the book, because I think a lot of people love these spirits, but they also love cocktails and they want to do it both at the same time. If you're new to mezcal, where, where do you start? If you are starting with a cocktail, I mean, that's a very easy answer. Uh, one of the most popular drinks in the United States right now is the mezcal margarita. It is just a margarita, but it's mezcal instead of tequila. And it adds that extra punch, that extra spiciness and smokiness. A lot of people don't exactly know that they want this. They ask for a spicy margarita, but the bartender knows that's a mezcal margarita. 
Another easy way to approach it is if you like Negronis, just uh, swap out the gin and put in the mezcal. You're going to get a delicious Negroni. Um, that works with a lot of drinks. It's a very um, exchangeable drink, a very versatile spirit. Like you could do a, uh, a mezcal version of a Moscow Mule. You could do a mezcal version of a, uh, a Manhattan. And uh, these all work very well. Usually everyone out there already has their drink or a drink they know they like. So go get that drink, but have it with an agave spirit instead of the regular spirit. Probably going to like it. I wish I had one now, actually. <laughs> well, it's past noon now. <laughs> Negronis really have become a thing, haven't they? I mean, there's so yes. many. Everybody's got 14 different types of Negronis now. How'd that happen? Again, bartenders, you know, rediscovering old drinks up. Uh, bartenders and certain people started getting more and more attracted to bitter flavors and Campari is a very bitter liqueur yeah. and uh, they were already fans of gin. And so they just started serving more Negronis in their bars. And, you know, and when you put in front of the customer, they're, they're going to try it, you know, and, and suddenly they realized, well, here's an easy drink, three ingredients. I like it. Why not? And it's a perfect aperitif. It sets up your appetite for a good meal. I can't remember if it was a mezcal or tequila when I was looking at the recipe in the book, but I saw it. I definitely want to make it. It was like a tequila sour. What a great idea. Um, like I said, it's really versatile. So you can do this plug and play thing. There are a few drinks in the book that have no author. You'll notice that there's no bartender or anything. And those are by me, but I'm too sheepish. I'm not going to say I invented the tequila sour or the tequila fix. That's ridiculous. You know, it's just probably been around forever, but there are no standard recipes. So I just put in a basic recipe for those drinks in there. And because I think people should try that, you know, because people might not think, you know, they like whiskey sours or whatever. This is like, what about a tequila sour? It might not occur to them. Very simple idea, but you put it in front of them and, and then uh, they're going to enjoy it. And suddenly they like it. You know, you have something that is the reverse Negroni with tequila. Right. This is by a wonderful bartender named Lynette Marrero. And she lives here in New York. The Armada. Um, there's been a tradition in uh, mixology for a while doing these reverse things because, um, you know, bartenders are contrarians and they tend to like things that maybe the public doesn't. So like a reverse Manhattan would be two parts vermouth and one part whiskey. And that would just be because, because bartenders love vermouth. And so here we have like a reverse agave Negroni. And so you've got one and a half ounces of Campari, you know, much more than the actual tequila, which is three quarters. Um, it just means that the bartender likes bitters and thinks that you might like bitters too. I've never considered a bartender as a contrarian, but you are 1000% right. They, they like challenging flavors. Yeah. And that's why they brought Mezcal to the public because it is a challenging flavor that you, know, you wouldn't jump to right away. And they said, you know, just try it and then try it again. I think you're going to like it. Cicadas made their appearance in the Northeast this summer. So we got to talk about the drink, the red grasshopper. Tequila, lime, honey. I'm a big fan of putting honey in drinks right now. It's kind of an obsession I have. And smoked paprika. Interesting, kind of a, a fun sounding drink right there. Yeah, it's just a simple sour. I mean, like you said, it's tequila, it's lime juice, it's honey syrup. So it's the thing that makes it is the paprika. You'd look at it and you think, oh, it's, um, you know, just an attractive garnish. You know, it adds that little spark of red, but it does make a big difference in the flavor. That paprika really makes that drink super simple. I know a lot of people have been making that one. And you've given me idea with the cicadas. It's, it's time to market the red grasshopper and, and market it hard. I was afraid you were going to say, let's put a cicada in the drink. I was getting a little nervous. I think you can buy powdered cicada on Amazon right now. So I believe it. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, might have saw your face just like really <laughs> turned upside yeah. down there. <laughs> I've, eat, I've eaten bugs. It's not yeah. fun. And I think I've seen oh, live man. bugs when I've had too many mezcals or tequilas. But what, is, uh, what does mezcal pair well with? You mean food-wise? Chocolate? Yeah, like food-wise, yeah. Oh, yeah. Chocolate's a good idea. I know people have actually paired it with cigars if you smoke that kind of thing. And then there's, you know, traditional uh, Mexican food is always always going to work. I'm more of a person with cocktails. I like to drink my cocktails before my meal. And, and then with my meal, I, I do tend to drink wine. I'm with you. I do the same exact thing. Yeah. Here, here. And then go back to cocktails after that. That's right. Yeah. And at the end, you have an after-dinner drink, which is either a cocktail or some lovely spirit by itself. I enjoy actually serving mezcal with grilled steaks. I think it works fantastic with that. The smokiness, it really pulls that extra charcoal grilling flavor out of the steak. I think it goes really well together. That sounds like a great idea. That makes complete sense. I know it's your show, but may I ask you a question? Please. Do you ever cook with agave spirits? So I have actually made a tequila crema for years that I serve with tacos. But uh, rest assured, after this conversation, I'm 100% going to make it with mezcal now. Nice. Yeah, I want to. I want to try that. Basically, I'll take about a cup of sour cream, a teaspoon and a half of mayo, and then I'll throw in about a third of a cup of a good tequila in there. You know, something a little darker. You know, I don't want to go with like a Blanco. Go a little darker, add a little extra flavor to it, and then season up with lots of good black pepper. It is delicious on tacos, burritos, even just on grilled chicken. It's a really great sauce. That sounds amazing. So, uh, million-dollar question, how do you take your tequila and your mezcal? Um, uh I tend to take it in uh, cocktail form. I've been writing about cocktails for 15 years, and I'm an unabashedly cocktail person. When I am around other agave enthusiasts and they like to drink it neat, then I will drink it their way. I'll drink it neat. But um, I, I love to have a, a mezcal Negroni. I love to have a, a mezcal margarita. I've actually invented a few drinks for the book. There's one that's called the Camarón, which is uh, it has mezcal and tequila in it and lemon juice and orgeat, which is an almond syrup. So it has a kind of a slightly tiki edge. My wife likes that one a lot, so I have been making it a lot. I like that one too. I'm on the way over to have one right now. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy and very complex. When you're going to your wine store or your liquor store, what should you be looking for when you're buying a tequila or a mezcal? I'm not going to ask you to adhere to a specific brand. I have no idea what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. I know that they're, everyone and their mother buys that tequila that's the blue and white. It looks like, like a potter made it, and it's a lot of money. And everyone's like, oh, my God, it's delicious. Um, and I've mm -hmm. had that, and then I've had something else, and I didn't really taste the difference. So what should I be looking for? I assume um, maybe you have a liquor store that you like to go to and you trust the people there. I do. Rather than like, you know, spend all this time pouring over the bottles and looking you know, them up on your phone and seeing who likes what, I like to depend on the opinions of bartenders and liquor store owners that I respect, especially the ones that know agave spirits. And then they can point you in the right direction. You can say, you know, what kind of flavors you like and what your price point is. If you have no one to turn to and you're new to like mezcal, the most popular and the most widespread mezcal is something called Domogue Vida, V-I-D-A. And it won't cost you a lot. It's like about $35, which is cheap for mezcal. And then you try there and then that's like, that's like an entry level mezcal. You try it and then you can find out, well, do I like mezcal? And if you do, then you can venture onto something a little more bold and perhaps a little more expensive. Unfortunately, a lot of mezcals are quite expensive because they're made in small quantities and they are uh, labor intensive. So what do you think, Robert? I, I feel like 
a spicy margarita, or that's what they call it, but, you know, a mezcal margarita, is that going to be the, the drink of the summer, or is there something <laughs> else you think is going to happen? Could be that. I don't know. It'd be nice to see Palomas become more popular. You know, it's it's more drunk in Mexico than here, but uh, it's super refreshing. I personally love the taste of grapefruit soda, so I think it's a great drink. All right. You and I make a good team. That's my favorite way to have tequila. Yeah, Paloma. yeah. Paloma. It's actually easier to make than a margarita. Wow. Yeah, there's a recipe for the Paloma in the book. In fact, it's, like, it's called the uh, Spicy Paloma. <laughs> <laughs> so everything's spicy. So that's what you, you know. It's a mezcal Paloma. This is a drink made by Phil Ward, who is a, a noted agave bartender. So you take the tequila and you have to infuse it with jalapeno peppers. But it only takes like a half an hour because jalapeno peppers do their work really quickly. And then you strain out the jalapenos and it's two ounces of that tequila, one ounce of grapefruit juice, three quarters ounce lime juice, half an ounce of agave syrup. And then you top it with uh, club soda, you know, or seltzer water or something like that. A little salt on the rim, a little lime wedge for a garnish. You're set to go. Oh. So yummy and refreshing. Perfect for summer. Quick public service announcement, too, for everybody. When a, when a book like this says lime juice, and you get a great book that has so much thought put into it with these delicious drinks, and you see lime juice, lemon juice, use a fresh lime, use a fresh lemon. Don't buy that pre-stuff, you know, that lemon stuff you can squeeze out. Don't do any of that. Just get a real lime. No, it's true. You, If you use that store-bought stuff that's already been squeezed, you're going to ruin your drink. Robert, thanks so much for joining us and giving us all sorts of ideas for how to enjoy mezcal and tequila this summer. We certainly appreciate it. There you go. It's the mezcal and tequila summer. That was Robert Simonson. His new book is Mezcal and Tequila Cocktails. You can see a few recipes from the book, including Robert's Cameroon and a mezcal mule, on our site, ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll spend some time learning about craft spirits from the owners of Fifth State Distillery. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Before the break, we talked about the value of small, non-industrial producers making high-quality craft spirits. That is exactly what's happening at Fifth State Distillery in Bridgeport. Robert and Bridget Sheldon, along with their son Sam, make small-batch gin, vodka, and whiskey, as well as a few signature-flavored liqueurs, chocolate, limoncello, and nutmeg. I asked Robert and Bridget if I could come by the distillery to talk about their gin, since the quintessential summer cocktail in our minds is a G&T. I'm so happy right now to be hanging out in the park city of Bridgeport. We're sitting here in the distillery, which is amazing. This is cool little wooden countertop we're standing next to with tons of flavored bottles and cool colors back there of all the different things they make. And then the wooden barrels. And then back behind me here, there's all the steel. They actually do the distilling, which is so cool. You guys, I love being here. It's so fun to see you again. It's been a long year and a half without people in here, so it's really nice to get reacquainted with people's faces and all the people that we only knew from the nose up. Um, how many different things are we distilling now? Uh, we have 14 products now. Wow. Yes. We're so, thinking 15 if you include hand sanitizer. That's true. That is true. We spent a <laughs> year making... can't drink that. 
We spent a year making hand sanitizer and uh, we are now back to all of our spirits. Rob's come up with a few more during the pandemic. Two of them happen to be gins, which we're very excited about. We've been taste testing people on it. We're gonna taste test you today on it, Plum. Absolutely. Rob, before we get into tasting, you actually come from a different background. This isn't what you've always done. No, I'm a chemical engineer by education. I've been making spirits since college, which was darn close to 50 years ago. But I worked for General Electric uh, as an engineer, went around the world fixing their plants. And when I graduated from GE eight, 10 years ago, this is what I always wanted to do and uh, set this shop up. And I'm excited about getting out of bed every day to come and uh, make new and unique products. And that's basically what we've done for the last five years. Uh, we have three or four unique products that are only made here in Bridgeport, Connecticut. We're always trying to trying to do the same things differently and better. You're like the Tony Stark of distilling. Uh, <laughs> I, I think so, but I'm a little taller actually than Tony here. Before we start jumping into this testing and, and, and tasting, which I'm really excited to do, what is it about Fifth State Distilling that's different than other small craft distilleries? Is it something in the water? Is it something, an ingredient that makes it your specific? Like everything, every expertise, it has to do not with the raw ingredients because people do have access to the same ingredients, but it's really the processes and the procedures, how to turn out a spectacular product consistently. So you just have to have a very defined process to get there. So that being said, we only use natural products right. here, which is unlike pretty much everything you find in the liquor store these days. Um, if you go into liquor store, look at that wall of flavored vodkas. They're all clear, but all the flavors don't originate in nature, which is great for shelf longevity and consistency, but I think it really lacks in terms of uh, flavor profiles. I think the, everyone appreciates the real deal. And because we do use real deal stuff, our flavored vodkas, of which we have three, we have cinnamon, uh, ginger, and celery. Celery is a unique one on the planet. Yeah. Our flavored vodkas do have a color associated with them. They are infused for months at a time to give them flavor, and that's how you can differentiate our product from those that use uh, other ingredients, manufactured ingredients rather than natural ingredients. And everything that you guys do here is done with corn, right? Yes. And it's 100% Connecticut corn? 100% Connecticut corn. It presents some problems, quite honestly, uh, in the sense that corn is difficult to work with. Uh, you have to heat it up higher so to, to extract the, uh, the carbohydrates, mm -hmm. the starches, so, which means you have to cool it down more, which means it's usually hotter here in the summer than if you worked with other grains. But corn is, I think, a great way to go with alcohol because the alcohol made from corn is a little more viscous, it's thicker, which means when you add flavor to it and you put it in your mouth, it stays on your tongue that nanosecond longer and you can actually taste the flavors more. The corn certainly has a flavor, but in a, in a vodka that's distilled to a very high percentage to where off the still it has to be above 95% alcohol, which means there's, you know, doing the math, there's 5% right. water. Alcohol doesn't pick up much of the flavor. The flavor actually resides in the water portion. 
with only 5% water, you don't taste much of the corn. Thus, that's why they call it vodka. The government definition for vodka is, in fact, without distinction, which basically means odorless, tasteless. But the difference is in the viscosity. Viscosity, it's thicker, creamier. Corn and potatoes gives you that thicker alcohol. Wheat, by contrast, is very thin. So wheat, when you put it in your mouth, rolls off your tongue and you don't taste it. And if that's the effect you're going for, that's great. But corn works for us because we tend to put, we're big in flavors. We do big, bold flavors. And the longer that liquid stays on your tongue, the more you're going to taste it. That makes total sense. I know you're always testing different flavors, different recipes, different types. You're making like bacon, gin, and crazy things. What's a recent flavor that you tried to get that just failed epically? Ooh, I had hundreds of epic fails. Um, you know, that's only how you get good. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, they're right over there. Yeah. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a lot of, uh, in terms of flavors, I'm getting better on the flavors, but sometimes the process, you know, they too have to align. You have to have a good flavor and a good process to get there. And I would say our chocolate was, was I spent almost a year making our chocolate uh, spectacular. And we call it chocolate excess because we put a boatload of Calibo chocolate in, okay. uh, real nice high-end uh, Belgium chocolate. But to make it, so the flavor profile, I got to pretty quickly, but the hard part was actually making it and uh, making it uh, consistent, making it with all the attributes that a customer wants in terms of viscosity and other things. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is my screw-ups are, are smaller and I'm getting to the right answer quicker than I have in the past. All right. Bridget, I got to ask you too. Um, it's summertime. Mm. We're getting into the wonderful sitting outside, enjoying great cocktails, gin specifically, at least in our book. For you, what's the go-to summertime cocktail? Well, my go-to cocktail of 365 days a year, Love if it. I actually were to do that, is a gin and tonic. Nice. So I'm from the South. We drink gin and tonics all year round. So even though I moved up here 30 plus years ago, I still love a gin and tonic in the middle of the winter. It doesn't even matter to me. Standard G&T, you want tonic, water, gin, a little lime. And a little lime. That's it, Yeah, huh? it's as simple as that. Oh. I mean, I do love really great cocktails. I love a bee's knees. Mm-hmm. I just love the, you know, the honey and yeah. and the lemon, and it's just I just started wonderful. making that with bourbon, actually. Yes. It's delicious. And yes. then, you know, when I'm making a gin and tonic, one of the things I love to do is make the standard gin and tonic, but then add a little cilantro leaves to it yeah it's pretty awesome well any kind of a spice it could be mint it could be basil yeah um rosemary is good in gin mm-hmm. also fresh herbs and cocktails are best friends and they're beautiful they are they're they just are. beautiful so whether you make it you know with um ice in a glass or you shake it cold and pour it in a martini glass it's really good they're almost as beautiful as your husband here he's pouring <laughs> things for us to taste uh, you want to take a little you know, well you you can't uh, drink all day if you don't start in the morning <laughs> <laughs> that should be your next shirt you put out just have it on there and just say this day distillery <laughs> uh, so we've got some stuff poured here yeah. in our little tasting cups these how big are these cups this uh, is like- these are communion cups 
the uh, I believe they're a quarter ounce. Okay, a quarter. So they're ounce. half filled, and and so your limit is eighty-seven of these little cups. <laughs> Perfect. So just, just so you know. Perfect. Yeah. You know, just that's by weight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's check it out here. So what's okay, this first this, one I've got in front of me? This is our standard go-to, award-winning oh, yeah. gin. Six botanicals. Uh, this is what we've made from the get-go. We spent three years developing this. I, I would bring home three bottles of gin to my wife every day, it labeled A, B, and C, and she had to choose one over the other. And then the next day, I'd bring home D, E, and F, if she would choose. And you know, three years later, this is the formulation that we ended up with. This is what we got. All right, let's give us a taste. 94 proof. What are the botanicals, Bridge? Um, juniper dominant, mm-hmm. and we have cinnamon, cardamom, coriander, <laughs> angelica root, and lemon. The nose on this is unbelievable. This smells like summer to me, which I love. It's, it's just it, I love the smell of it's, gin and the smell of our gin in, in particular. Yeah. We, we don't do m- many things that are balanced, but uh, this at 94 proof uh, is smooth and nicely balanced. So incredibly smooth. Not a really harsh burn, but you're really getting that that summery botanical, the best way to describe it for me is almost like that grass in a field, you know, with the juniper berries. It's, it's awesome. This is really great. And when you exhale on this one, I think you really get the cardamom, which lends itself to be sweet. So even though gin is, does not have any sugar in it, it to me lends itself to be sweet. Man, that's fantastic. You really get that mouthfeel, that viscosity on your tongue. Yeah. That, it comes from corn. I didn't know that. I learned that today, which is fantastic. So this is a great, obviously, mixer for the summertime. Mm-hmm. Amazing. This, the second one we're going to try, Bridge is going to describe, and it's, uh, we have a good news story to go with it. So this is our Seville gin. It is made with Seville oranges from wow. Spain. Um, so it's still juniper dominant with our other botanicals in it. The Seville oranges are only available for about six weeks a year, okay. from mid-December to early February. Um, they're the bitter oranges that marmalade's made out of. Interesting. Okay. Right? You know what? The second you said marmalade, and I put this to my nose and yeah. smell it, so, you get that marmalade smell to it. Yeah. So wow. it, it smells great. Um, it is has a bitterness to it because of the orange peel, the Seville orange peel that we use. But again, to me, gin has a sweetness to it. So it's a balance between the tart and the sweet. That is delicious. I cannot wait to make a GOT out of that. I'm going to take that, just like that, make a typical gin and tonic, and I'm going to take a little orange zest and put it on top and maybe even hit it with some fire on that oil just to get that extra puff of the oil into it. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. We that's just really won good. an award for the Seville. Go ahead, Bridge. Yes, we entered the New York International Spirits Competition, and our Seville gin won 93 points. There you go. So we are very about. excited about Getting that. Getting that Connecticut pride. I love it. On a global scale for gin. You know, gin is one of the faster growing spirits here in the U.S. Yeah. But in the U.K., for example, they have ginapaloozas. And, you know, the, the whole, we have beer blasts here, uh-huh. uh, beer festivals. They have ginapaloozas, three days of drinking gin. This is um, incredible. What so a great tasting. Tough competition, and we did very well. Man, congratulations on that. Attaboy, Rob. That's that's a great job. You guys are so happy and proud of you for that, especially that hometown pride here in Connecticut. Yep. Fun that you're right here in Bridgeport to do that. Well, what do we have here? What's our next one? Okay. So, so the next is our gin uh, with the addition of tangerine and green Madagascar peppercorns. Okay. So, it works. <laughs> so you get the tangerine up front. Okay. You know, once you swallow, you get the, the slight pepperiness of it. Okay. It, it's a mild pepper. 
The Madagascar pepper, it's, it's not in your face. You're going to feel something okay. dancing on your tongue. Oh. It's more earthy and young. We use tangerine because that is the sweetest of the citrus okay. skins. So again, we were going for the contrast between the gin, the tangerine, with the peppers. All so right. let's give this a shot. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one down. Now, do you, do you want to switch this around a little bit and taste it, or do you want to let it just get to the back of your throat? How do you recommend? I just, just sip it. Wow, the tangerine comes out really strong right in the front, but you're right in the back after you swallow it down the back of your tongue. Those peppercorns start to dance a little bit. I can feel yeah. it totally. But it's not harsh. No, it's not It's not like a real pepper would be. Yeah. It does stay with you for a bit. It does. Robert, Bridget, you guys are amazing. Thanks for having us come out here. I love tasting these things, but you guys are making a great product made by amazing people, and we're just so happy to have you. Congratulations, by the way, on winning that those medals and that award and... I mean, that's, that's global. That's fantastic. It, well, it's awesome. And, and the best award that we won um, from the New York International Spirits Competition was that we were named the Connecticut Gin Distillery of the Year. There we go. That's so, what I'm talking about. So, you know, we feel like we're on, on top of the world right now. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was Robert and Bridget Schulten, owners of Fifth State Distillery in Bridgeport. The distillery is open for tastings again. Woohoo! Visit fifthstatedistillery.com for hours and information on their award winning spirits. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken and Kitty Talarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Mm-hmm.